Section 14 of The Life of Samuel Johnson, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Read by Janice in Georgia. The Life of Samuel Johnson, Volume 1, by James Boswell. Section 14. The necessary expense of preparing a work of such magnitude for the press must have been a considerable deduction from the price stipulated to be paid for the copyright. I understand that nothing was allowed by the booksellers on that account, and I remember his telling me that a large portion of it having by mistake been written upon both sides of the paper so as to be inconvenient for the compositor, it cost him twenty pounds to have it transcribed upon one side only. He is now to be considered as tugging at his oar, as engaged in a steady continued course of occupation sufficient to employ all his time for some years, and which was the best preventive of that constitutional melancholy which was ever lurking about him ready to trouble his quiet. But his enlarged and lively mind could not be satisfied without more diversity of employment and the pleasure of animated relaxation. He therefore not only exerted his talents in occasional composition very different from lexicography, but formed a club in Ivy Lane, Paternoster Row, with a view to enjoy literary discussion and amuse his evening hours. The members associated with him in this little society were his beloved friend Dr. Richard Bathurst, Mr. Hawksworth, afterwards well known by his writings, Mr. John Hawkins, an attorney, and a few others of different professions. In the Gentleman's Magazine, for May of this year, he wrote a life of Roscommon with notes, which he afterward much improved, indented the notes into text, and inserted it among his Lives of the English Poets. Mr. Dodsley this year brought out his preceptor, one of the most valuable books for the improvement of young minds that has appeared in any language. And to this meritorious work Johnson furnished the preface, containing a general sketch of the book, with a short and perspicuous recommendation of each article, as also the vision of Theodore the Hermit found in his cell a most beautiful allegory of human life under the figure of ascending the mountain of existence. The Bishop of Dromore heard Dr. Johnson say that he thought this was the best thing he ever wrote. 1749, etat. 40. In January 1749 he published The Vanity of Human Wishes, being the tenth satire of Juvenal imitated. He, I believe, composed it in the preceding year. Mrs. Johnson, for the sake of country air, had lodgings at Hampstead, to which he resorted occasionally, and there the greatest part, if not the whole, of this imitation was written. The fervid rapidity with which it was produced is scarcely credible. I have heard him say that he composed seventy lines of it in one day, without putting one of them upon paper till they were finished. 
I remember when I once regretted to him that he had not given us more of juvenile satires, he said he probably should give more, for he had them all in his head, by which I understood that he had the originals and correspondent allusions floating in his mind, which he could, when he pleased, embody and render permanent without much labor. Some of them, however, he observed were too gross for imitation. The profits of a single poem, however excellent, appear to have been very small in the last reign, compared with what a publication of the same size has since been known to yield. I have mentioned upon Johnson's own authority that for his London he had only ten guineas, and now, after his fame was established, he got for his vanity of human wishes but five guineas more, as is proved by an authentic document in my possession. It will be observed that he reserves to himself the right of printing one edition of this satire, which was his practice upon occasion of the sale of all his writings, it being his fixed intention to publish, at some period for his own profits, a complete collection of his works. His vanity of human wishes has less of common life, but more of a philosophic dignity than his London. More readers, therefore, will be delighted with the pointed spirit of London than with the profound reflection of the vanity of human wishes. Garrick, for instance, observed in his sprightly manner with more vivacity than regard to just discrimination, as is usual with wits, when Johnson lived much with the Herveys, and saw a great deal of what was passing in life, he wrote his London, which is lively and easy. When he became more retired, he gave us his vanity of human wishes, which was as hard as Greek. Had he gone on to imitate another satire, it would have been as hard as Hebrew." But the vanity of human wishes is, in the opinion of the best judges, as high an effort of ethic poetry as any language can show. The instances of variety of disappointment are chosen so judiciously and painted so strongly that the moment they are read they bring conviction to every thinking mind. That of the scholar must have depressed the too sanguine expectations of many an ambitious student. That of the warrior Charles of Sweden is, I think, as highly finished a picture as can possibly be conceived. Were all the other excellencies of this poem annihilated, it must ever have our grateful reverence from its noble conclusion, in which we are consoled with the assurance that happiness may be attained if we apply our hearts to piety. Where then shall hope and fear their objects find? Shall dull suspense corrupt the stagnant mind? Must helpless man in ignorance sedate roll darkling down the torrent of his fate? Shall no dislike alarm, no wishes rise, no cries attempt the mercy of the skies? Enthusiast cease, petitions yet remain which heaven may hear, nor deem religion vain. Still raise for good the supplicating voice, but leave to heaven 
the measure and the choice. Safe in his hands, whose eye discerns afar the secret ambush of a specious prayer, implore his aid in his decision's rest, secure whate'er he gives, he gives the best. Yet when the sense of sacred presence fires, and strong devotion to the skies aspires, pour forth thy fervors for a healthful mind, obedient passions, and a will resigned. For love, which scarce collective man can fill, for patience, sovereign or transmuted ill, for faith, which, panting for a happier seat, counts death kind nature's signal for retreat. These goods for man the laws of heaven ordain, these goods he grants, who grants the power to gain. With these celestial wisdom calms the mind, and makes the happiness she does not find. Garrick, being now vested with theatrical power by being manager of Drury Lane Theatre, he kindly and generously made use of it to bring out Johnson's tragedy, which had been long kept back for want of encouragement. But in this benevolent purpose he met with no small difficulty from the temper of Johnson, which could not brook that a drama which he had formed with much study and had been obliged to keep more than the nine years of Horace, should be revised and altered at the pleasure of an actor. Yet Garrick knew well that without some alterations it would not be fit for the stage. A violent dispute having ensued between them, Garrick applied to the Reverend Dr. Taylor to interpose. Johnson was at first very obstinate. "'Sir,' said he, the fellow wants me to make Mahomet run mad that he may have an opportunity of tossing his hands and kicking his heels. He was, however, at last, with difficulty, prevailed on to comply with Garrick's wishes, so as to allow of some changes. But still there were not enough. Dr. Adams was present the first night of the representation of Irene and gave me the following account. Before the curtain drew up, there were catcalls whistling, which alarmed Johnson's friends. The prologue, which was written by himself in a manly strain, soothed the audience, and the play went off tolerably till it came to the conclusion, when Mrs. Pritchard, the heroine of the piece, was to be strangled upon the stage, and was to speak two lines with the bowstring round her neck. The audience cried out, Murder! Murder! She several times attempted to speak, but in vain. At last she was obliged to go off the stage alive. This passage was afterwards struck out, and she was carried off to be put to death behind the scenes, as the play now has it. The epilogue, as Johnson informed me, was written by Sir William Young. I know not how his play came to be thus graced by the pen of a person then so eminent in the political world. Notwithstanding all the support of such performers as Garrick, Barry, Mrs. Sibber, Mrs. Pritchard, and every advantage of dress and decoration, 
The tragedy of Irene did not please the public. Mr. Garrick's zeal carried it through for nine nights, so that the author had his three nights' profits, and from a receipt signed by him, now in the hands of Mr. James Dodsley, it appears that his friend Mr. Robert Dodsley gave him one hundred pounds for the copy, with his usual reservation of the right of one edition. Irene, considered as a poem, is entitled to the praise of superior excellence. Analyzed into parts, it will furnish a rich store of noble sentiments, fine imagery, and beautiful language. But it is deficient in pathos, in that delicate power of touching the human feelings which is the principal end of the drama. Indeed, Garrick has complained to me that Johnson not only had not the faculty of producing the impressions of tragedy, but that he had not the sensibility to perceive them. His great friend Mr. Walmsley's prediction that he would turn out a fine tragedy writer was therefore ill-founded. Johnson was wise enough to be convinced that he had not the talents necessary to write successfully for the stage, and never made another attempt in that species of composition. When asked how he felt upon the ill success of his tragedy, he replied, "'Like the monument,' meaning that he continued firm and unmoved as that column." And let it be remembered as an admonition to the genus irritabile of dramatic writers that this great man, instead of peevishly complaining of the bad taste of the town, submitted to its decision without a murmur. He had, indeed, upon all occasions, great deference for the general opinion. A man, said he, who writes a book, thinks himself wiser or wittier than the rest of mankind. He supposes that he can instruct or amuse them, and the public to whom he appeals must, after all, be the judges of his pretensions. On occasion of his play being brought upon the stage, Johnson had a fancy that as a dramatic author his dress should be more gay than what he ordinarily wore. He therefore appeared behind the scenes, and even in one of the side-boxes, in a scarlet waistcoat with rich gold lace and a gold-laced hat. He humorously observed to Mr. Langton that, when in that dress he could not treat people with the same ease as when in his usual plain clothes. Dress, indeed, we must allow, has more effect even upon strong minds than one should suppose without having had the experience of it. His necessary attendance while his play was in rehearsal and during its performance brought him acquainted with many of the performers of both sexes, which produced a more favorable opinion of their profession than he had harshly expressed in his Life of Savage. With some of them he kept up an acquaintance as long as he and they lived, and was ever ready to show them acts of kindness." He, for a considerable time, used to frequent the green room, and seemed to take delight in dissipating his gloom by mixing in the sprightly chit-chat of the motley circle then to be found there. Mr. David Hume related to me from Mr. Garrick that Johnson at last denied himself this amusement from considerations of rigid virtue, saying, 
I'll come no more behind your scenes, David, for the silk stockings and white bosoms of your actresses excite my amorous propensities. End of section 14